Hey listeners, quick question. Are you tired of overpaying for your mobile plan? I've got the answer. Ting Mobile. Ting Mobile is all about flexibility and savings. You only pay for what you use, no crazy fees or overages. It's perfect for those who want control over their phone bill without s- sacrificing quality. Say goodbye to bloated phone bills. Go to milwaukeemafia.com slash ting. Ting Mobile. Mobile that makes sense. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your weekly podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Milwaukee Mafia Podcast. I'm Eric Walterkins. I'm Gavin Schmidt. And Gavin, what do you got for us today? All right, so this is a two-parter, technically a three-parter because it ties into last week too, but first of a two-parter that I'm calling Death in the Family. Yeah, which... uh, just, just in case anyone's wondering, and you shouldn't be wondering unless you're a total nerd, um, that's a Batman reference. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's where that's why it's called that. But this has nothing to do with Batman. Okay, so just a little bit of catch up here. Um, we started out with the mob boss in Milwaukee being Vito Guardalabene. His two sons were Pete and Angelo, who also were pretty naughty guys in their own way. They had a sister named Ann. Antonia or Antonina, and she married a man named Isidore Aiello. So you might remember last time we were talking about the Aiellos. And they had a son named Frank. So now we're on to the grandson of Vito Guadalabene. Wow. Down to Frank Aiello. So, so we're moving along, slowly but surely. We're moving forward in time here. Uh, Isidore Aiello was born in Sicily, of course, and he came with his wife to the U.S. Uh, in the early 1900s. Frank was also born in Sicily, so he came over as an infant, and uh, they moved in with Pete Guardalabene, which isn't really that strange, because that would be the wife's brother, and they helped set up Milwaukee for Vito's arrival. This was before, they were there even before Vito was there. Uh, The press would later claim that Isidore was related to Chicago's Joseph Aiello, who we talked about last time. Sometimes the paper would even say they were brothers. In the Milwaukee Mafia book, I said, well, a relationship is possible. I am now today going to say no. Okay. (laughs) New evidence has been found. Follow that up. Yes, I, I, I did the work and I traced both of their families back many generations. And I can tell you, they are not brothers. They're not cousins. They're not second cousins or third cousins. They just happen to have the same last name. Throw that rumor right out. Okay, so the Aiellos, the Milwaukee Aiellos, had several children. There was Frank, but then there was also Vito, who is the naughty brother. So, like his grandfather, also named Vito. (laughs) He is is the naughty Aiello. Uh, There's Josephine, who we'll be talking about. And then there's another brother... Angelo, who we will not be talking about today, but he might come up in the future because he goes on to be notorious for a very different reason, and that's that he owned a gay bar. In what time frame? Uh, offhand, I'm not sure, but fairly early, like 50s, 60s. Well, okay. I mean, at least it was kind of a not a total hush thing at that point. I mean, well, it was still pretty hush. Yeah, well, we'll get to that eventually. There, there's there's a whole lot of great stories about the mafia being involved with gay bars. So we'll, we'll get there. That's a great topic, but we're not quite to that point yet. So just to get an idea of what's going on in the family, uh, there's at one time a prohibition officer shows up to conduct a raid. And Vito Aiello, this is the bad Aiello, 
at only 16 years old, he punches the prohibition officer, beats him about the head, causes a broken nose and skull fractures. He was sent to the federal authorities for charges, but they were dismissed. So he, he cracked the skull of a prohibition agent and they let him go. go. He would also get caught up in gambling and, and all kinds of things, even before he was 18. So trouble kid here. Well, the third ward in Milwaukee was not far from the first ward. And the first ward is where the Polish uh, nationalities would move in, the ethnicities, whatever. And soon the Italians and the Poles would start interacting, because, of course, if you share a border, you're going to start talking to each other. And although the Polish were easier to assimilate because, you know, the Germans were already there and the Polish and the Germans or something is in common, you know, that's a whole other, we're not even going to talk about all that, but... You know, they're doing okay. They're still new. They still want to talk Polish, so they're not fully American. They're they're their own group. And they get to meeting up more and more with the Italians. And what happens when two different groups hang out together? What do you think happens eventually? Conflict, I would imagine, of some sort. That's a great guess. But in fact, the answer is just the opposite. Love? Love. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. So Frank Aiello, who is the focus of this story, he meets a young Polish girl named Cora. Cora's last name is something like Konitsny, and I'm sure I'm butchering that because I can't do Polish names any better than I do Italian names. So I'll just call her Cora. So he meets Cora, and they get married. They were married in 1928, and they moved into Cora's family home. While there, she lived with her other brothers. Her parents died young, so kind of it was like a sibling thing. The wedding was extravagant. Many Italians showed up, even people they barely knew. Because you have to keep in mind that Frank Aiello, again, he's still the grandson of the mob boss. And in fact, he's not just the grandson, he's the eldest grandson. So, you know, he's kind of, he's a big deal. So people are throwing money at him, and then people are showing up, and... One guy recalled going to this wedding. He's like, I don't even know why I was there. He's like, I think my mother-in-law was a cousin of somebody. So, like, just everybody in the neighborhood's invited. So, at this point in time, mm-hmm. the fact that he married a Polish girl, was mm-hmm. that pretty a normal thing? Or was that kind of frowned upon within, like, an Italian community that, um, that he wasn't? marrying an italian you know i don't know if it'd be necessarily frowned upon um definitely like if if he was like a hardcore mob guy they might have thought that was odd but uh frank is he's the good brother he's the good brother so you know i don't think that they're that concerned about him trying to have nice italian children and stuff like that he definitely is ahead of the curve, though. I mean, not that it's super unusual, because when you've got a... The Italian neighborhood is fairly small. So mm-hmm. it's inevitable that some people are going to get married outside of the neighborhood. Right. But he was probably a little bit ahead of the curve yeah. there. I mean, in the 1920s, most of the Italian community is speaking Italian. Mm-hmm. I mean, they don't speak Polish. They don't speak English very well. So if they go to the Polish neighborhood and they can't speak Polish or English, I mean, I don't know how you start dating and somebody. somebody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Um, I, I don't have a great answer, but I would say that he was probably probably one of the earlier people to do so, but I don't think it would have been, anyone would have held it against him. Yeah, it wouldn't have been like a frowned upon thing, but it would, they probably would have been like, well, this is kind of weird. It was, it was probably kind of, it's probably kind of weird, but yeah, but nobody, at least in what I have, nobody was like, oh, what the heck is wrong with this guy? Yeah. So 
Uh, Cora would later say that her husband was always happy. He was a nice guy. Best husband you could possibly ask for. She said, quote, I don't know what I married, a man or a washerwoman. Other men go shooting or bowling, but he always stays home with me. So, I, <laughs> so this is not an exciting guy. Uh, he rarely had visitors besides his mother. So <laughs> yeah, that, that sometimes he would talk with a man named Sam Miliocho, because, who was an Italian, because Sam Miliocho was dating Cora's sister, and they did eventually get married. So another Italian-Polish oh, marriage boy. there. One person was not allowed in the house, and that was Frank's sister's husband, so his brother-in-law, a man named Angelo La Mancha, because La Mancha treated Cora like a dog in the streets because she was Polish. So here you, here you go. Okay. So this so guy has a problem with, with it. it yeah. yeah. She said that when she and Frank would visit Frank's parents, they would not stay long because La Mancha was living there. And Frank did not like how La Mancha looked at Cora. Aiello and La Mancha were also at odds because La Mancha married Josephine, this is Frank's sister, to a justice of the peace rather than in a Catholic church. And according to Frank Aiello, this is not even a real marriage. They did not get along. Someone listening is a hardcore Al Capone fan, and maybe somebody is. They might recognize the name Angela La Mancha. And if they don't, um, I would now explain who he is. And this will tie in again from last week. A few years prior to this, Chicago police, acting on an anonymous tip, raided an apartment in Rogers Park, which is a neighborhood in Chicago. They found 37 sticks of dynamite and a list of names and addresses, including an address for the Rex Hotel. They go to the Rex, and they surprise La Mancha, who was hiding out there with four other men, who were members of the Joe Aiello gang. So I know this gets confusing, that... He's a member of the Joe Aiello gang, and he married Josephine Aiello, but again, not, not related. related. <laughs> <laughs> they had three rifles and a box of ammo, with La Mancha's pockets disclosing rent receipts for an apartment. So, of course, what do they do? They go, the police now go to the apartment. They find that it is across the street from the home of the Sicilian Union president, Tony Lombardo, who you may recall mm, last was time. The, was the one that they were trying like hell to kill. That's right. So they had this apartment set up to try to kill him, which, of course, you know, they do eventually. They also check out another hotel room they have rented, which contains rifles and binoculars. And out the window, they can see a, a cigar store owned by corrupt alderman Michael Hinky Dink Kenna, a friend of Al Capone. And you might recall from last time, this was Al Capone's favorite cigar okay. store. La Mancha was interrogated at the police station, and he actually admitted that Joe Aiello was the one behind these, uh, these little nests of guns and uh, binoculars. And strangely enough, they let him go. <laughs> like, just, just saying, yeah, this is, this is Joe's stuff. They let him go. <laughs> I don't know. So back to, back to our story. So Frank was such a devoted husband, Frank Aiello was such a devoted husband, that when a nurse once asked him to remove his wedding ring for medical reasons, he wouldn't even do that. He told her he swore above God not to ever remove that ring. So this guy is... This like, guy doesn't even seem real. I know. <laughs> like, I know. He is above and beyond. He made his living working for the Wisconsin News, which was a newspaper. And he didn't write for the newspaper, but he was had a delivery truck. And everybody there had nice things to say about him. They said... He always spoke in a really nice way. He was very good. His reputation was great. One person said he was a good sort of chap. They said he was never mixed up in anything bad at all. 
everybody at his work loves this guy. <laughs> and then, of course, this being the story that it is, things take a dark turn. On May 23rd, 1931, it was just another Saturday night at the family residence. I won't try to say the name again. The family residence. Rosalie, who is Corda's sister, and her boyfriend Sam were at a party, and later they went out to a dance hall. Frank Aiello was playing cards with uh, his two brothers-in-law. It's 11.30 at night, and without any warning, he was struck by two shotgun blasts through the window. One slug hits him in the temple, and the second one hits him in the right shoulder. Cora was sleeping in another room at the time. A neighbor was outside in a car with her boyfriend, who knows what, and, and, and heard the shotgun blast. She ran inside the house to find everybody in a panic, yelling, Frank is shot. Frank is shot. They drove a couple blocks away where they were to flag down a motorcycle officer. Another person, another neighbor, was able to witness the scene. And he said, It looked like a Model A Ford. The driver was stout. He wore a light-colored hat and a dark overcoat. Another neighbor found the sawed-off 12-gauge shotgun nearby. And yet another neighbor picked it up. Amazingly, picked it up by wrapping his hand in a handkerchief first. Wow. Which, that, I give that guy a lot of credit. Yeah. Really thinking ahead. Frank's rushed to the hospital, but it's too late. He was dead before he ever left the house. Next morning, the headlines told people of the seemingly random murder, but they were actually eclipsed by another death. Whitefish Bay attorney William Sullivan had been shot and killed during a home invasion. His murder, Ayala's murder, wasn't even the biggest murder in we town that day. <laughs> the next morning, Isidore Ayala, Frank's dad, Vito, Frank's brother, and the two Guadalabene brothers, Angelo and, and Pete, went to the police station to look at the shotgun. Upon seeing the gun, Isidore turns to the other men and says in Italian, Didn't I tell you? As if to say to them that he knew who had done the deed. This remark was overheard by Detective George Gentili, who was the first Italian officer in Milwaukee. He had joined in 1928. So now they do have an actual Italian officer at this point. Okay, this isn't the officer that could speak Italian. Nope. This was a, an actual Italian an officer. An actual Italian officer okay. now. So we've reached the point in history now where we actually have a guy who can deal with the neighborhood. I, and I'm sure you're going to get to this, but this guy had to have been wrapped up in something. Frank, I mean, mm -hmm. he couldn't just be this saintly guy and then somebody just one day decides, well, we're going to blow his brains out. But we're <laughs> coming to that, so I guess we don't really have to talk about that. I'm not going to huh? give you a direct answer to that yeah. question. <laughs> So police weren't really sure where to go with this because, of course, like you just said, everybody had such nice things to say about him. So they said, well, let's look into, into bootlegging. This has got to be involved with bootlegging somehow. So they speak to anybody they know who is a bootlegger who would talk to them. They talked to a man named Archie Smith. Archie Smith said he had been in the booze racket for a year, maybe a year and a half, and he had actually dealt with Vito Aiello, Frank's brother. And at one point in time, Aiello said that he needed some money. So Archie loaned him $200. Archie didn't see him again for a while. And when he ran into him again, Aiello, Vito Aiello, owed him 100 gallons of alcohol for this money. That, that's how they were going to pay it off. But he only brought him 50. Well, they met up again to discuss this, and they went to a barber shop. Aiello brought Archie into the back room of the barber shop, pulled a gun on him, took $100 from him and his checkbook, and then drove off in Archie's car. Uh, Archie doesn't stand for this. He reports it, and Aiello is soon arrested. But the case is dismissed before it ever gets that far. 
because Archie refuses to testify. He explains to the police now, not at the time, but now that he's being asked about the murder, he explains that, oh, well, Pete Guardalabena had come to see me and he paid me $200, so I figured it was even. <laughs> so, again, nothing bad to say about Frank, but this brother Vita, what a guy. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Another man named Raymond Kalupa was questioned and gave an interesting story about Frank. He said that he used to work for a radio store, and at one point in time, he went to a bar restaurant called The Fern to collect a payment from the owner. Frank Aiello was in the place at the time, and the owner said to Kalupa, Anytime you want some good liquor, he can fix you up. Well, the very next day, Aiello arrived at the store in a Wisconsin news truck and traded six bottles of Johnny Walker whiskey for a radio. And there we go. <laughs> <laughs> the owner of this restaurant told police that he would sometimes purchase liquor for the fern from Vito Aiello, and sometimes Frank would be with him. If Vito was out of town, Frank would deliver a gallon of alcohol for him, and he would be driving a Ford owned by Vito's partner. He didn't remember Vito's partner's name, but he knew he was the son of Peter Balistrieri. just didn't remember which son it was. <laughs> the restaurant owner said he knew Frank all his life and never had any trouble with him. He was a good worker and a wonderful boy. He only grew up a block away from them. And he said, even though he helped his brother sometime, the bootlegger in the family was Vito. He said it wasn't Frank. Even he, he's like... Yeah, this happened, but he's not hes not the guy. Okay. Police questioned Frank Legalbo and John Messina, two names who I don't... Well, Legalbo might have came up once before, but John Messina is a new name for us. Legalbo at this time is only 22, but he was already known to police because he was the nephew of Vincent Krupe. Do you remember Vincent Krupe? I remember the name. I can't remember who he was. Okay. Vincent Krupe was Milwaukee's vice lord. He was the guy who had all the brothels, and they ended up getting deported. Okay. So they knew Frank Legalbo because Legalbo was caught in the brothels a couple times. So Legalbo said that he had been in the soft drink parlor business for about three weeks, and he operated a store with Angelo LaMancha. Legalbo himself had actually just recently come from Madison. He grew up in Madison, and his father, Joseph, still lived there. He said that LaMancha did own a Ford, and it was not unusual for him to disappear for days at a time. Because John Messina is hanging out at the same time, they had talked to him. And he says, yeah, I know these guys. Sometimes I do odd jobs for Pete Guadalabene, like wash his car. He said, yeah, I know Angelo LaMancha, but we're not close friends. The police said, well, isn't it true that you guys got arrested together like just a year ago? He's like, well, yeah, that happened. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't mean I like him. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I don't really know the guy, but yeah, that happened. They speak with the waitress at this uh, Legalbo restaurant. She said that she worked for, for these guys for a little over a week, and sometimes she was a waitress, sometimes she was a piano player. Then she dropped what might have been a bit of a bombshell. She said, well, La Mancha left the restaurant at 10.15 on the night that Frank was killed. He was in there the rest of the evening. At one point, he received a call from his wife, Josephine, and he would hang out throughout the evening and speak to Legalbo in Italian while they ate steak, but she didn't understand Italian, so she didn't know what they talked about. Later that night, she was brought home by Legalbo's girlfriend, but she's like, it was strange how it timed out that he left not that long before the murder and didn't come back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so police called the family in to talk about La Mancha. Now Isidora Yellow said, well, yeah, 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 yeah. He said that his daughter and son-in-law had lived for 10 months in Ohio, but when they came back to Milwaukee, they lived with him. So he's like, yeah, he's like, I know them. He goes, but we don't, we don't even have guns in the house. 
Guadalabene, uh, Pete, said he knew both Angelo La Mancha and his brother, Pete La Mancha, it's another Pete, and that both of them had been at his house in just the past week. He said that sometimes Pete would even stay over at his house. Vito Aiello, again the bad brother, said that he worked as a chauffeur for Guadalabene, driving his limousine. Aiello further said that he knew both Angelo and Pete La Mancha, and that Angelo, yeah, he did. He had a habit of leaving town. He's been doing that often. Sometimes he leaves for three or four days at a time. I don't know where he goes. They asked Josephine, Angelo's husband, and she again said, yep, that's true. Sometimes he'll leave for three or four days at a time. I don't know where he goes, and I don't ask him. So That's weird, but yeah, okay. She doesn't know. Well, it's it's weird, but at the same time, you got to keep in mind who you know who her family is. Her dad's in the mob. Her uncles are in the mob. Her yeah, grandfather's in the mob. I I think she's got it figured out that it's better not to ask, to ask questions. questions. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the police now next speak with a car salesman who apparently sold a car to Angela La Mancha. But when they show a photo to the car salesman, he's like, "That's not the guy. That's not the guy that I sold the car to." But okay. And he's like, I didn't even get paid for the car. He's like, the guy came to take a test drive. I called in a credit report. The credit report said, no, this guy has terrible credit. Don't sell him this car. I was going to cancel the deal, but he never came back from the test drive. A day or two later, he went to the restaurant, the Legalbo restaurant, to to find him and said, hey, you know, got to bring your car back. <laughs> but he was told that, no, he's not there. He's out attending a funeral. So he went and he talked to the Guadalabenes and he said, you know, they'll know where he is. And nope, he couldn't find the Guadalabenes. The car dealer then talks to his friend who's a nightclub manager. And the nightclub manager says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know Angela La Mancha. You have to get that car back. You should have never <laughs> given it to him in the first place. <laughs> so that's awesome. So the lesson to you, like, if you give somebody, let somebody take a test drive and make sure they bring the car back. The police aren't really getting anywhere, uh, if you haven't noticed. So they're grasping at straws, and they just start talking to anybody. They talk to a, a prominent businessman, Nunzio Maniachi, who is also another mob member. He said that, oh, yeah, Frank was a fine boy. He wasn't involved in liquor. He didn't owe anybody anything. He goes, no, he's fine. Don't worry about him. They talk to a man named James Calio, who was the former manager of a billiard hall. James Calio says, I don't even know why you're talking to me. <laughs> I don't know Frank Aiello. I don't know Vito Aiello. I don't know Angela La Mancha. And personally, here, and here comes this. Personally, I don't even know why you're bothering me right now. I'm recovering from some gonorrhea that I picked up in the infantry. <laughs> and I'd really rather just be left alone. And this Totally report- true. This yeah. is the police report. I swear well, to this you. is the police report. Yeah, absolutely true. <laughs> was, I thought this was printed in the newspaper, mm, which would have mm. just been great. No, but this guy is like, I don't know these guys, and my, I'm having, my gonorrhea is kicking my, my butt right now. Yeah, so just leave me alone. I would have cut that part out entirely, but it's kind of funny. So. <laughs> they keep uh, they keep talking to other people. I talked to a man named Frank Galliano. He's like, yeah, I kind of know him, but don't really know that much about him. He goes, yeah, I know I know Pete Guadalabene, but I haven't even seen him in two or three years. But at that time, yeah, Guardo Benny helped me out of a jam. He he hired an attorney for me. I don't know what for, but he hired an attorney for him. So, okay, so this guy kind of knows these guys, but doesn't help. They next speak to Nunzio Maniachi's son, August. And August, he admits freely to the police. He goes, yeah, I'm a bootlegger. Uh, I've got a I've got a coupe here. I ran, run liquor all over the place. 
Sometimes I buy it from Vito Aiello. Sometimes I buy it from Angelo La Mancha. I've never bought it from Frank. Uh, you know, sometimes I'll go on trips and I'll deliver alcohol. So he was pretty open about it. But he's like, yeah, again, he's like, Frank is not, he's not the guy you think that he is. And August Maniachi is later on in our story, not today, but much later. He's going to be huge because he, not only gets to be a pretty powerful guy in the mob, but he also is becomes the major informant against the mob later on. Oh, wow. So he's going to be a major, major figure down the line. And, uh, and then he gets killed. And then he gets killed. <laughs> yeah. They find Pete LaMancha, not Angelo, but the other one. He's returned to Milwaukee for questioning after being found in St. Paul, Minnesota. After he's arrested, they find out that, oh, he's also wanted, uh, went back in Sicily because he murdered a jeweler there during a botched holdup. So they question him and then immediately deport him after. During questioning, they find out that his name is not actually Pete, which is pretty normal because apparently nobody named Pete is really named Pete. <laughs> His name is actually Eugene. He said, well, my business, my business is bootlegging because I, I don't have a job otherwise. He said he hung out at Carlo DiMaggio's La Tosca Cafe with Pete Guardalabene and Angela La Mancha, who he said was his cousin, not his brother. And Carlo DiMaggio has come up previously um, as a murder suspect in a previous story. He will come up again because his cafe is like a hangout for bad dudes. Just out of curiosity, why are all these people so open about the fact that they're bootleggers? I mean, at this point, it's still illegal to be... It is still illegal, but this is... So now we're up to 1931, and as as I believe we talked about this during the actual Prohibition episode, the police don't give a crap. Okay. Like, already halfway through Prohibition, the police don't care. Okay, so... Prohibition was much shorter than maybe the law actually stated pro, it was. Pro, prohibition on paper was 13 years, but that's it was a federal law. Hmm. And the local police, for the most part, didn't care. And that varies city to city, but in Milwaukee, they really didn't care. Sure. So did, did they really never? I mean, they must have pushed it a little bit when it first came. Yeah, out. early on, they would enforce the law, but I mean... It's it's one of those. I mean, that's how the law is in general. I mean, if the society doesn't want it, you know, they're not going to enforce it. There's all kinds of laws on the books that nobody enforces. Mm-hmm. Like, and and it's, I mean, it's Milwaukee. It's like yeah. it's like you can't just suddenly tell everybody to stop drinking. It doesn't work. <laughs> so yeah, the police. At this point, the police have given it up completely. You can basically say it to their face, and they're not going to turn you in for it. Okay, so this guy, this this uh, Pete or Eugene Lamanja, he gets around. He says that he's he's moved around all over the place. He lived in Chicago for three years, Italy for a while, a small town in Argentina for eight or nine years. <laughs> His father actually lived there with him and died in Buenos Aires. Then Pete returned to America. He lived in New Jersey for seven years. While in New Jersey, he got married, and after he got married, they came to Milwaukee. Since moving to Milwaukee, he was a bootlegger, and he would make runs between Milwaukee and St. Paul, Minnesota. And his partner was a man named Jack Inea. And Jack Inea will come up in the not-too-long future because he's not only a mob member, but he's going to get killed. <laughs> so, uh, not not yet, but it will come. Uh, and while in St. Paul, they met up with Inea's father-in-law, who coincidentally used to be a member of the Black Hand, sending out threatening letters to people. So, everybody's connected to something. something. Yeah. Just a shady outfit of people. Yep. 
And while talking to them, Eugene says, oh, yeah, 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 it was me. It wasn't Angelo who went to the car dealer and drove off with the car. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I signed Angelo's name, but that was totally me. <laughs> so that, that was cleared up. Finally, police struck gold again when they called in Lucille Krupe for questioning. Lucille was probably questioned because she was related to Vincent Krupe, the Vice Lord guy, and Frank Legelbo, who is, you know, very directly connected to this because he has a business partner of Angela La Mancha. So I'm, I'm guessing this is how she was picked. Otherwise, it seems very random. Mm-hmm. And this is one of my favorite parts of this whole thing because what she says is not necessarily helpful, but she's very talkative. <laughs> and and this is this is the great thing about when you get the police reports. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna digress for a moment here. If if it's like a murder where a husband kills his wife, the police reports, although all police reports are interesting, it's not going to be that interesting because they already know who did it. They just have to kind of put the pieces together. together. Yeah. But when it's a murder where they don't know who did it, the real fun of the reports is just seeing where they go, who they talk to, because people are going to tell them the craziest stories that have really nothing to do with really anything. anything. Yeah. Yeah. So. And they're going to let them tell them because they're just looking for anything that they can use to possibly take the next step or yeah. find the next clue or whatever. So some of the best information I have from doing research comes from these like homicide reports that don't solve the homicide. It's just random people <laughs> telling them stuff. So, okay, so we got Lucille. She's like, yep, I know Frank Aiello. I know Vito Aiello. I know their father. Yep. Mm-hmm, yep, I've met Angelo La Mancha because he's in business with my nephew, Frank Legelba. Sure. She says, yep, I also know Pete La Mancha, the cousin of Angelo La Mancha. She's like, yep. And they showed her, showed her a photo. She's like, yep, yep, that's the guy. So she knows all these people. She recalled that not that long ago, Frank Legelba went to Madison to meet somebody who was in a dispute with him over alcohol. And when... Legelbo approached that man's yard. The man shot Legelbo in the foot. Legelbo returned fire and shot the man in the stomach. And soon after, Frank Legelbo returned to Milwaukee and stayed at Lucille's apartment for to recover. Did, did any of this matter? Did she have to tell the police? <laughs> no. But she's going to tell about her nephew getting in a shootout. <laughs> While he's recovering in her apartment, Angelo La Mancha and Jack Inea come up to see him. Inea had a bottle of booze with him. And also with him was a man named Pete Carlino from Denver and another man who said that he was Carlino's partner. Carlino told Lucille, quote, they pinned a lot of murders on me, but can they prove it? <laughs> he handed Lucille a business card, said he was staying at the Hotel Martin and offered to bring her back to Denver to meet his wife and kids where she could be given a nice apartment and nice clothes. No idea what that means. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Carlino said that the heat was on in Denver, so he would hide out in Omaha, Nebraska for a while, which that's a whole other story. <laughs> he intended to bring Jackie Nea with him. Lucille said she had seen Carlino at Carl DiMaggio's La Tasca restaurant. She heard Angela LaMancha there talking to Carlino, as well as Pete Guadalabene, Frank Legabo, Jackie Nea, Vito Ayala, and they all said they would have to leave at four the next morning to go get a carload of booze. She overheard La Mancha talk on the phone in Italian to some guy in Racine saying that they would pick up a full truck of booze and then leave an empty truck there for him. So she's hearing all this stuff. She understands Italian. 
and she's she's saying whatever to the police. So like this is like again this this is a bit of a sidetrack from the murder, but holy crap, Perhaps she's just telling them everything. everything. Lucille recalled first meeting one of the LaMancha brothers when she was living at the Schuster Hotel with her husband. Whichever one it was, she wasn't sure. Stopped by with Vito Aiello, so it's probably Angelo, but stopped by with Vito Aiello, and they had been running booze in from Chicago. Lucille told the police that they really wanted answers. Quote, Pete Guadalbene knows more than anybody else. And he was the head man down in the third ward. You know, which they already knew that, but still. Mm-hmm. She said that Frank Legalba was in trouble one time for receiving stolen property. But Guadalbene got him out of trouble by paying somebody $400 to throw the case out. She further said that John Messina was working for Guadalbene in Racine, watching a still there. She promised the police to tell them anything else that she found out, because her life was not, quote, worth a dime, and she was leaving to go to work in Upper Michigan. (laughs) All this stuff. Quick side note. We're almost to the end of the story. (laughs) Quick side note here. This is one of the greatest finds, um, not just this conversation, but this part of the conversation, because she talks about Pete Carlino, this guy from Denver coming into town. Mm -hmm. That I would have never known. It obviously didn't make the papers, so that would have been totally unknown to me. Um, And Pete Carlino, for people who don't know, which is probably a lot of you, most of you, um, Pete Carlino was like the major mob figure in Colorado. People in Colorado knew who he was. The, The papers called him the Al Capone of Colorado. And not long after this his being in milwaukee he went back to colorado where he was found dead on well i shouldn't say found dead he was shot dead on september 14th 1931 and i forget exactly what date we're at right now but but we're in 1931 so it's not long after this his brother sam carlino was actually killed on may 8th 1931 not long before lucille talked to the police so this is actually a really interesting timing to get this report because they, they were hiding out in Milwaukee because they were both, well, one had just been killed and the other one was going to be killed. So um, otherwise, nobody would have known that they were even in Milwaukee. Milwaukee so that is crazy. So it's a really cool thing to find. Why mob guys in Colorado would know and hang out with guys in Milwaukee, I still don't know. I have no idea what the connection is there. Like, I don't get how guys in one state know guys in another state. That always confuses me how you know where to go and where to hide. But just the fact that it happened at all, and there's, like, there's documentation of it, I think that's so cool. Just, again, a little aside there, but really neat, really neat thing that it was able to tie in the whole death of, like, the Colorado mob boss into this. Mm -hmm. Okay. Ready for the end? I'm ready for the end. Okay. Lucille returned briefly to the police station to answer a few more questions before leaving town. She said she went to Frank Legalba's tavern, and she was talking to a waitress there, who said the police had taken away Frank Legalba's car because the car was registered to Angelo La Mancha, and it matched the description of the car from the murder. After a while, Legalba showed up at the tavern and complained to Lucille, his aunt, about the, quote, damn dicks, who had been around and took two boys from Chicago away from the tavern. I have no idea who these Chicago guys are. Damn dicks, by the way, if people don't know. Dicks means detectives. But it's I like it's so funny that he calls them damn dicks. I've never heard that before, Ben. He said that La Mancha was telling people that he was part owner of the tavern, so he was getting more heat than he deserved. 
which is funny because he actually told the police already that he was in business with him, so he did that to himself. Legalbo told his aunt about taking an entertainer to Pete Guadalobene's summer home. I don't know what that means, but if I read that correctly, it sounds like he was doing something funky and probably didn't want his girlfriend to know about it. <laughs> Lucille prodded him, saying, Oh, isn't it simply terrible that Angela La Mancha went away? Because now they're going to think that he did the murder. And Frank Legalbo said to her, Well, Angelo has had his words with Frankie Aiello in the past. After prodding a little more, he said, Well, you know, the car they took was missing during the same hours that Frankie was killed. I'm not going to say that Angelo did it, but he did have the car and it did match. And that was the end of Lucille talking to the police. And and that's our cliffhanger. That's our cliffhanger. So we're not going to find out anymore? No. That's it. You can ask me questions, but but otherwise it's a cliffhanger. So we have no idea what what happened with Frank. Like... We don't even know. All we know is that Frank, the worst thing he ever did was probably delivered alcohol for his brother. Yes. I mean, that's the most we can get from it. Yes. But yet somebody wanted to blow his brains out. Apparently so. There's got to be more to it. Well, that's the second half of the story, which actually is a little shorter than the first half. But we'll pick it up next time and, and we'll see where it goes. We'll see. Why was Frank killed? Who wanted him killed? Was it his brother in law? I don't know. So we do get these answers. Well, I do answers. know, but... <laughs> we do get these answers that's in the, the next that's, that's the second okay. half. This, okay. this, was, this was way too long to try to squeeze into one. <laughs> so no, the story... <laughs> the, the Frank I. Yellow story is not over yet, but, but leaving it here because otherwise it's going to be like a two-hour thing. thing. So. <laughs> it's already getting up there. Yeah. So... so <laughs> um, I don't think I really have any other questions for this one, so I think we can just wrap her up. But make sure everybody tune in for the next for the conclusion yeah, of this story. If you hung on this far, you're gonna to want to come back next time and see what happens. Might answer some of your questions and uh, might might result in another guy getting killed. Not promising anything, <laughs> but it could but happen. There, it's a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this concludes this episode. Thanks everybody for tuning in, Walkie Mafia. We'll be back next week. Oh, and I'm sorry. Do you want to hit them with contact info? Sure. Yeah. If you want to reach out to us, uh, find the email at milwaukeemafia at gmail.com or go to milwaukeemafia.com or facebook.com slash milwaukeemafia. If you search Milwaukee Mafia, pretty good chance you'll find me somewhere in there. I've really cornered the market. So, And as always, please, if you enjoy the show, give us a rating on your favorite podcast player. And yeah. we appreciate you tuning in, and we'll be back next week. Thanks a lot, and have a great one. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next week for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history.